Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. Hey everyone, I'm Bryce Merriman, and you're listening to the Homeland Lab Podcast. I wanted to start today by thanking any listeners who have gone to iTunes and given the podcast a rating or review. The 30 seconds it takes to enter in your thoughts about what we're doing here really helps this conversation find its audience at the intersection of public space and homelessness. So again, thank you. And if you haven't yet, I'll invite you to do so now. I also wanted to invite you to reach out if you have any ideas about specific people or perspectives that you'd like to hear on a future podcast episode. You can email us at homelandlab at gmail.com. Now for today's show. In many cities and towns, there's often a neighborhood where poverty is concentrated. At certain times in their histories, New York's Hell's Kitchen, San Francisco's Tenderloin, and Los Angeles's Skid Row bore this dubious distinction as the symptoms of chronic, intractable, concentrated poverty, and were held up as Exhibit A's as a built-in indictment of urbanism in general. Seattle's Pioneer Square could easily have been on that list of neighborhoods, yet today visitors to the center of the neighborhood at Occidental Park would be astonished by the diversity of public life, whether food trucks or foosball, ping-pong tables or public basketball courts. The space is simultaneously filled to capacity yet graciously accommodating to new arrivals. For communities wrestling with how to manage public space in the face of a rising tide of people experiencing homelessness, Pioneer Square's story is both instructive for what it did and did not accomplish. Rather than apathy, the community engaged. Rather than divesting, the community invested in relationships and each other. And critically, rather than excluding, they committed to inclusion. The success of the neighborhood's public spaces certainly rests on many people's shoulders, but Leslie Smith's shoulders may be the first amongst equals. As the executive director of the Alliance for Pioneer Square, she has helped transform Occidental Park in destination that it is today, and her lessons, candor, and insights are instructive for anyone trying to understand how to empathetically engage in the process of transforming urban space into welcoming a welcoming place for everyone. To start today's episode, I began by asking Leslie to describe her neighborhood and the work of the Alliance. Pioneer Square is Seattle's historic neighborhood. Um, it People like to talk about it as being the birthplace of Seattle. Um, and Generally, when people talk about it that way, that's the Anglo, the white Anglo perspective of this. There were native tribes living here. It was a very busy place before white settlers showed up. But it was the beginning of commerce and um, kind of wealth and the manufacturing class and the timber legacies of the Pacific Northwest all began in this little neighborhood. We have a really rich built environment of historic buildings, um, 111 buildings in the historic district. Um, and it's considered the largest collection of Romanesque architecture in the country. That said, uh, I am a Seattle native. I've lived here longer than I'm willing to admit. <laughs> um, These are lines you don't cross in the podcast, don't worry. <laughs> um, and it's been interesting to me that even as a Seattle native, although I always had an affinity for this neighborhood, how little I actually knew about it and how it is considered nationally as this gem of a historic district, uh, because so much of the historic fabric is still intact here. Um, and there's life in all these old buildings. Um, and interestingly, nationally it's considered this gem, but from a public policy perspective, in the city of Seattle and regionally, it hasn't been treated that way. Um, so Pioneer Square um, has the largest concentration still, probably in the region, of housed formerly homeless people. 
Um, and it is a neighborhood that is significantly out of balance in terms of proportion of population being really, really poor and in need of... Um, I tend to refer to people as they are under-treated, both for mental illness and for chemical dependency. Um, that is kind of the... So that population has resided in this neighborhood in a long time for a long time, when the city of Seattle and King County started housing formerly homeless people. Pioneer Square had a lot of old hotels and no residents to push back. Okay. So um, that population has always been here. And why I say it's kind of crashing public policy, for some reason they, the city and the county also thought this would be a really good place to put a couple of major sports stadiums. So there's just these kind of, and it's one of the largest transit hubs on the West Coast. And so it's like these things are really messy together. Um, and I don't believe, from my perspective, the systems have never, city, county, and the state have also never lived up to their regulatory obligation to a historic district in terms of investing in the infrastructure here when they put in transportation projects. The Alliance was founded actually uh, seven years ago last month. Um, there had been a very rocky history of neighborhood organizations in Pioneer Square. Um, at one point in time, there were three separate neighborhood organizations um, that fought like cats and dogs, fought for resources. The city, prior to my getting here, the city had forced a merger of those organizations. From an organizational development perspective, it was done really poorly, um, and that organization never really had clarity on what its mission and purpose in the neighborhood was. Um, that organization was dying, um, was without strong leadership and without resources. Um, when the city started a neighborhood planning process, it was the first time a plan had been done for Pioneer Square through an economic development lens rather than a Department of Neighborhood lens. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really, how do we breathe some life back into the economy of this neighborhood? Because was, the neighborhood had kind of fallen on some tough times, the, or the at least it perceived. The, the neighborhood was. had fallen on really tough times. It was just before the beginning of the Great Recession. Um, what was considered the iconic retail anchor of the neighborhood decamped for another neighborhood in the city. Um, and our retail vacancy rate at that point was more than, was greater than 50%. Um, interestingly, the city was not tracking at that point in time that the economy of the district was about a billion dollars a year then. And that doesn't include the stadiums, that there was a hidden billion dollar a year office economy in Pioneer Square. Mm -hmm. It was our retail and our restaurant, our retail level economy that was actually struggling. But nobody knew who was here. So we founded the Alliance. Um, there was a commitment made on the part of the city. Um, there was a small, almost defunct bid, business improvement district in Pioneer Square and property owners. So each of those three entities, city, the bid, and the Pioneer Square property owners, agreed essentially to what I would say would be startup funding for a new nonprofit. Um, when we started seven years ago, it was myself and one other staff. Um, we are now, seven years later, a team of seven and a half with a million and a half dollar a year or budget. Um, we view ourselves as both an alliance of the neighborhood, so we are here to hold together residents, business owners, and property owners, and find a through line to neighborhood revitalization, to keep people at the table and in conversation, rather than kind of defaulting to the divisiveness of the past. Um, and we are an economic development organization. Um, we follow kind of the basic tenets of that come originally came out of uh, uh, National Trust for Historic Preservation and Main Street, but now are kind of considered the five legs of economic revitalization. So we do business and neighborhood advocacy, and that's everything from helping an individual business or retailer navigate the city 
permitting and ad nauseum processes <laughs> they have to go through um, to us advocating at a systems level for the neighborhood. And this was why I mentioned before the city and the county and the state ignoring their regulatory obligations. When federal transportation money intersects with a historic district, there is a federal requirement to mitigate the impacts to that historic district. That had never occurred here prior to the alliance. And half, um, not half, a quarter of a million dollars a year for the last five years has come into my budget in order to support this neighborhood through transportation construction. And it's important because it's allowed us to do a whole lot of our public realm improvements that otherwise would not have happened. But it's also, we can then force complete streets and curb cuts and all of the other things that make an inviting and welcoming and usable public realm um, that the city had always ignored because of it being cost prohibitive to do that work in a historic district. Wow. So <laughs> you mentioned that the that the uh, alliance really is an alliance of all these different interest groups. How does the social service community fit into that alliance? So um, he, um, human services, it, uh, we probably have eight or nine, maybe 10, different uh, providers of services to um, formerly homeless or currently homeless people in this pretty dense, small neighborhood. Um, and I have a human service provider on both my bid ratepayer board and on the governing board for the Alliance. Um, so their voices are in the room. Um, and they are included in neighborhood stakeholder groups. They are invited to participate when we do meetings around what should streetscape design look like? What should the new waterfront look like? Public safety meetings. Things um, that you wouldn't think that a human service provider would be interested in. And, but and yet, <laughs> you know, when I started working in this neighborhood, I would have told you that 2,000 people lived in Pioneer Square and at least 80% of them lived in the missions. Hmm. They are part and parcel, part of the fabric of this neighborhood. We have always had the reputation. People in the Pacific Northwest, it's like when they think poverty, it has always been synonymous in their heads with Pioneer Square. Now that you know homelessness is epidemic and endemic everywhere, um, we are still viewed as the place where all the homeless people are. And it's interesting because even though you see a lot of people walking around the streets of Pioneer Square who appear to be homeless, um, they are in fact housed. Um, what they don't have is rec rooms or living rooms or public spaces. Old hotels have little teeny rooms and virtually no public space. So people come out of their transitional housing, shelters, whatever label you want to put on it, and spend their days in our public spaces. And so they are, in part, they're as much of the fabric of this neighborhood as anyone else who lives here. Um, it was interesting to me when I started working in this neighborhood that if you talk to the people who lived in Pioneer Square who lived in market rate housing or artist housing, um, they didn't complain about the homeless people. I say with air quotes around it, they complained about drunk sports fans. Hmm. That they actually considered drunk football fans more problematic in our public spaces than the homeless people. And I think that that is still a pretty uniformly held belief in this neighborhood. <laughs> so when I talk, when I have, because I've been at the table for the last seven and a half years in conversations that the city and the county have had around street disorder and homelessness and um, and when I talk about street disorder, I don't just, that's, those aren't code words to me for homeless people or people who have untreated mental illness or untreated addiction. It really is about street disorder because I'm talking about nightclub goers and sports fans and right. anyone who basically thinks it's okay to misbehave, misbehave right. um, or engage in socially 
less preferred or illegal activities. Right. And that cuts across every single socioeconomic category. Yes. yes. That, that type of street disorder. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something that you said earlier about kind of how the issue of formerly homeless people being housed in Pioneer Square, how mm -hmm. that took root. And something that I've heard you say in public previously, <laughs> which is that Pioneer Square lives Seattle's values. Yes. And what you mean by that? Um, there are a lot of, Seattle's known for its neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, and probably over the last 15 years, it's also known for the success of the commercial business districts within those neighborhoods. When I was growing up, there were neighbors, you know, you, you never would have gone to Ballard to go out and eat or drink or shop. You wouldn't have gone to Columbia City. You wouldn't have gone to all these other little neighborhoods. And now all of them have these thriving um, economic engines in them. And so that are, as we increase our density in neighborhoods, it makes all, every neighborhood in Seattle more walkable and more livable that way. What they don't have is any shelters or any permanent supportive housing. And so when I say that Pioneer Square is, Seattle is an incredibly generous population. We, there, there is almost not a tax that we won't support. <laughs> Particularly, you know, I mean, the human services, low income housing, you know, extra funding when the federal and the state system started failing in terms of mental health and chemical dependency treatment, you know, we passed an, an increase on property taxes in all of King County so that the county continued to have revenue to so people could get necessary, you know, life-saving services. Um, and yet, none of those neighborhoods want those people living in their neighborhoods. And so it is really... And the Pioneer Square now has an unhealthy balance of who lives here. And I think from a therapeutic standpoint, we have an unhealthy concentration of human services. If you go over to the corner of 3rd and Yesler, which we have been completely unsuccessful in our revitalization work or in our reclaiming of public realm so that it's more welcoming for all of the populations, if you stand on the corner of 3rd and Yesler, within two blocks in any direction, we are now probably housing 2,500 people with under-treated mental illness and chemical dependency. That's not healthy for anybody. It's not healthy for the neighborhood. It's not healthy for the people who, I believe people who are struggling with untreated illness have a right to live in an environment where they have a hope of success and a hope of actually getting well. And I would challenge anybody, and I do regularly in all kinds of meetings, um, I would challenge that anyone can actually get well if they're in this neighborhood. Well, and it, and it goes back to a conversation that you were having earlier about that, that concentration of people and the public realm really being their recreation room, the place yeah. where they get to hang out. Um, and that contrast between the park that you're referring to up at 3rd and Yesler and the park that's just outside our windows here, which is Occidental Park, right in the heart of Pioneer Square. The park up at 3rd and Yesler, it doesn't have a lot of programming. It's kind of a nice treed and lawn park, pretty mm -hmm. basic. And um, it's, it's full of people during the day, by and large, who are using drugs um, and alcohol and <laughs> lying around. And, and so what, what do you think the difference is between the success that you've had here locally just outside the window and what's going on up there? Is it simply the concentration or are there other things at play? I think there are other things at play. It's yes and. <laughs> um, when we reclaimed, let's start with when we reclaimed Occidental Park and there were people who accused us of, oh, this is just a war against poor people sure. and you're just driving out the homeless people. And so we invited some of those detractors to come down and actually sit in the park with us. Um, and there are still homeless people and people who live in transitional housing and permanent supportive housing and the missions in Occidental Park. They are playing chess, just sitting. Um, what they aren't doing in Occidental Park is engaging in illegal behavior. Um, anyone is welcome in the park. We weren't trying to drive any particular population out. 
we were trying to get rid of a set of behaviors mm. that made other people feel unwelcome in the park. When I first started working in the neighborhood in Seattle summers, I would eat lunch in the park. I would have staff meetings in the park. And then we went through a period of two or three years where there were times I was even hesitant to walk through the park. Mm. And it wasn't because of the homeless people. It was because of drug dealers and other bad actors who were coming to the neighborhood to, to um, take advantage of um, and be predatory in relationship to people who are struggling in their addictions and their mental illness. And it just became, it, it didn't feel welcoming. You would look at it and go, ooh, too sketchy, I'm not going in there. But by programming it, by bringing in tables and chairs, the people who live in shelters who were also looking for safe places to be during the day, they were like, this is fabulous. The drug dealers who actually aren't even from this neighborhood, they really come in to prey on the people who live here, they didn't feel as comfortable. And what has happened is it has driven almost the entirety of that antisocial, illegal behavior to other parts of the neighborhood. That happens. Yeah. Or other parts of downtown. Yeah. But I had a meeting yesterday morning with one of the judges from the King County Courthouse, which is also a third Yesler, um, who um, wanted, she wanted to talk to me about the street disorder that goes on around there. And I actually brought with me a map that we created of the concentration of human services around there. And I said, okay, so if you put 2,500 people with mental illness right here, see, in these eight buildings around that park, why would you expect that park to look any different? There's no upper level office tenants in that part of the neighborhood. All those buildings are full of either the county courthouse or permanent supportive housing for people with untreated mental illness and untreated addiction. This is what you're going to get, right? right? This part of Pioneer Square, we have 15,000 people a day who come here to go to work. So even though our residential grade is still low, the office tenancy is, it's almost impossible to get a space in this part of the city now. And so if you can make your public space welcoming and get rid of illegal behavior so that we all feel comfortable, so women feel comfortable. So an office tenant says, oh yeah, let's take our staff meeting to the park today. Um, people will start coming out of the buildings. They won't just <laughs> stay upstairs and you know eat food delivery at their desks if you make welcoming safe public spaces. Well, it seems like that's that's a big part of it. Is you've you've programmed it. If you program it, they will come. I mean, the, the, now the space feels safe, and it's not just the physical thing. There's also a an, a quote unquote official presence. Yes. In the park. Yes. And so, can you talk about that 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 uh, software side of things? <laughs> well, the 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 I will not pretend that the first summer wasn't challenging. You know, um, the. The bad actors, the drug dealers, and the others who had taken over that particular park, um, they, that first summer when, so we knew that we had to like, we couldn't do a soft start in Occidental. We had to basically helicopter in every bit of... The shock and all strategy. <laughs> yeah, the, the, all the shiny parts. And so it was, we picked a date and then made sure that, you know, um, we filled that space with really bright tables and chairs and games and staffing. That came about because through a public-private partnership between um, a down, the Downtown Seattle Association and the City of Seattle with other partners. We're a partner to that. The Seattle Parks Foundation is a partner to that. Friends of Waterfront Seattle is a partner. And we are a funding partner as well as a... Let's think about programming. Let's figure out how to get the political weight to actually. This was the first public-private partnership that the city of Seattle actually was, with a great deal of trepidation, actually signed on for. Um, but this part we knew was going to be challenging. So the other piece here is that the Downtown Seattle Association staffs that park. It is their employees who are there seven days a week. Um, in the first couple of years after we took the park over, we staffed it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we 
Uh, we leave the tables and chairs out um, all the time. So they're fur bob, you know, metal stuff so they can get rained on, which is important still. <laughs> I've heard it has a reputation. Yeah. Um, but we, we actually had overnight security. This is, Seattle is also a real big labor town. Mm -hmm. And the city employees who were used to taking care of the park um, were concerned about, you know, it's always a labor issue when the, the private sector takes on something like that. So the security at night actually was there to protect our stuff as much as, um, it was interesting too, because my whole time in this neighborhood, people always slept in that park at night. And as soon as we had this more official presence, it wasn't that we were actually telling people they couldn't sleep there at night, but they all stopped. Hmm. Um, I think it was the presence. I also think it was the construction of the building on the east side of the park because um, it was dirty and it was noisy and construction guys show up early in the morning and start swinging hammers. Right. <laughs> um, and so it just made it a lesson. It wasn't as easy to camp there. Mm -hmm. um, but the programming has, um, as I said, there's like a kid's play area. <coughs> there are mag you know magazine racks, games that you can, you know, there's like a life-size oversized Jenga that people play. There's, what's that stuff called? That bean bag. No, the oh. bean bag toss. Yeah. Actually, interestingly, in terms of programming public space, the, um, the favorite, you know, activation that we've done are actually the two basketball hoops that are there now. Hmm. And it also, both the, the chess, the foosball tables, and the basketball is this great equalizer. You will find People out of the tech companies playing games with currently homeless people. Um, you'll, I've gone out into the park and found two middle school boys playing chess with homeless guys. I mean, it's lovely. It, it really, it, it works. I mean, we all kind of said, we all hoped it would work. You know, we all thought it was going to work. And then we all went, wow, it worked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like, it seems like that's one of the successes of, this neighborhood compared to other neighborhoods in the city in that it is living up to those ideals of public space that I think everyone kind of has in their heart, but maybe isn't played out in real life where this neighborhood public space looks like the rest of the city. The people who are using it look like yes. the rest of the city and, and no one, in the conversations that I've had, no one has felt excluded, as you said. It's been more about, now I feel comfortable going there. After the first summer, um, the Seattle Parks Foundation hired an independent writer to write a piece for their newsletter mm -hmm. about Westlake and Occidental. And the woman reached out to interview me, and so I arranged um, for her to interview a number of people in the neighborhood um, who used the park and, you know, had been, had watched the transformation. And I wanted to be the last person that she talked to. And it was funny because I said to her, we can just meet in the park. And the day I met her down there, it was a beautiful Seattle summer day like today. And I got down there and the park was full of people. And of course, this woman and I had never seen each other. So, <laughs> and we both laughed. Because we knew that if it had been the summer before, we wouldn't have even said meet in the park. Mm -hmm. It would have been something that we walked past. Mm -hmm. But she acknowledged to me um, that she took, she believed when she accepted that contract job to write about our park intervention, she believed that this was a war on homeless people. Mm -hmm. And that through the course of interviewing people about what we had done in Westlake and Occidental, including we arranged for her to interview people who live in the shelters, who spend their days in the park. Right. Um, and he helped her see the homeless people who were still sitting in the park. And he, he knew people. He knew workers by name. He knew the other homeless people by name. He knew all the dogs by name. Um, but the homeless people were invisible to her because the park was so full of people 
They just fit in. It wasn't that they were the only, the only this is their park, which is what all the Yelp reviews used to say about that park. Mm. They talked about it as you can you could probably still find them online. Why would I go to this neighborhood and look at the bum park? And it's like these are you know this there by the grace of God go all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it it's expensive. The programming is you know the staffing of it, the keeping the. You know, keeping tables and chairs and equipment and all of that kind of stuff. It's an ongoing big expenditure to keep that park alive in the way it is now. Well, I mean, for so that's a, that's a great segue because for places that are struggling with these issues, and as you said, it's going on across the country. What is how does your board view that expense? And, and kind of what, oh. the, what the range of that expense is and what's the return on for, so, to them. So interestingly, one of the activations that the Downtown Seattle Association does in the park is bring in food trucks. Mm. Um, much to the delight of the office tenants and much <laughs> to the dismay of the brick and mortar restaurants. I'm shocked. All of whom are my constituents and part of the ratepayer group of my bid. My bid is on, is on office tenant or on you know, people who pay rent in space, tenants. Um, and yet, at the same time, even when we start those really contentious conversations, one of those restaurateurs who will always come and talk to me about the food truck says, let me start by saying, thank you for getting us our park back. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's... Um, it's the sustainability of it over time. And, and, you know, this is the first time we've done this in Seattle. So we too are learning as we shift in uh, different types of programming, as we find out what works, what doesn't work, what's popular at Westlake that may not be popular here. This was going to be an early test of programming and a kind of a revenue and expense model for the new Seattle Waterfront Park, you know, which is what, 26 blocks of a new park that we're creating in Seattle, which will be managed by some kind of nonprofit private entity. And so we have to have some idea of what, what works, what doesn't work, what do you need in terms of security and cleaning and all of that kind of stuff. Um, in the early days of this, in other parts of the country where people have taken back parks like this, they have created another bid around the park, and that has been a significant source of the funding for this park revitalization. Um, our early taking, that first summer, we probably spent a million dollars between the two parks, but that was that was a whole lot of hard costs that then didn't you know, you need to replace at a much, much slower rate than buying enough tables and chairs and games and kiosks and everything for two parks. Um, over time, the biggest expense is, of course, labor. And Seattle is also a very expensive labor market. Mm -hmm. um, with a $15 an hour minimum wage, you have to think, you know, which other parts of the country or other cities in Washington who are trying to do this, they're their math issues are going to be a little bit different than ours. Um, I don't think anyone regrets the investment. Um, we did it by a combination of the partners I mentioned earlier are all funding partners. Um, the Downtown Seattle Association is, a, is certainly, the, um, their bid is a funding partner at a much higher level. Mm -hmm. And adjacent property owners in Pioneer Square are also they, um, we have a number of property owners who were in for essentially a quarter of a million dollars each over five years. So when you start cobbling together money, you have enough money to actually do right. something to pay for programming and any of you concerts and those kinds of things, bigger, bigger ticket items than just the day to day kind of program. Got it, got it. So, and you haven't heard any feedback that no, we want to back off on that after that five year run is, is coming out, or have you even started to entertain those so, conversations yet? So, our business model, the, the funding partners when we started, and the model that is used nationally is people move to models of sponsorship. It is still unclear 
whether we're, we will get there to the extent in Seattle, to the extent they have in other places. Um, you know, it was a model that Dan Biederman perfected in New York um, around Bryant Park, which was, you know, kind of the first major public space that was reclaimed in this way. Um, he did both, created a bid around that park, and he has huge sponsorship dollars. Um, but there's a lot more um, money and people in Manhattan <laughs> yeah. than in Seattle. And so it's it's us figuring out as we go forward what is the correct mix of revenue stream, you know whether it's uh, public money from the, some public money from the city, um, money from adjacent property owners who are both benefiting from it being a tenant amenity to their adjacent properties. Plus, let's not kid ourselves; their property is worth more if their public spaces are fabulous and talked about and people want to visit them. Right. Absolutely. Their restaurants do better. Everybody does better. Well, it's, it's nice to hear that, that the model from New York wasn't a perfect fit because I think that this is, <laughs> this is a struggle that everyone has. Is like you look at some of these outlier successful places and you're like, we'd love to bring that thinking here to whatever our local community is, but how do we make it actually fit? And it's, it's a great story to hear that you've, been able to pull the right levers to, together at the same time to make this this a success. Well, and in year three, that still, you know, a, a sustainable revenue model is still hovering out there on the horizon somewhere. Right. We are not there yet. Yeah. Um, but no one, there is not a downtown stakeholder who's willing to let either of these parks go back to what they were before we started this process. Um, I knew early on that the entirety of Biederman's model would not work in Pioneer Square. Um, this is the only neighborhood in the city of Seattle, and so far it's, I, I don't know of another neighborhood in the country that already has two bids in it. Hmm. So my property owners pay into the Downtown Seattle Association, and my business tenants pay into the Alliance for Pioneer Square. Um, and so these buildings are already being taxed twice to do and to do a lot of this stuff. Um, and our partnership with the Downtown Seattle Association, because they do all of the downtown cleaning, they do safety ambassador services, they market Seattle, they do mental health outreach, and all of the, in addition to the park activation now in two parks. But it has freed us up then to be that economic and revitalization engine for this neighborhood. Um, my bid raises about three quarters of a million dollars a year. And if I had to spend that to clean this neighborhood, it wouldn't even cover the cleaning. So all of the marketing, the business advocacy, the retail recruitment, the, you know, the fact that I have two master's level urban planners on my staff to do <laughs> all the public realm work, um, none of that would happen if we were just a typical bid that business, that property owners form to clean the sidewalks. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you, uh, take a different direction here. Mm -hmm. You talked, you talked a lot about kind of that, that concentration of, uh, human services, housing within the neighborhood. The other thing that has been changing over the last five, seven years <laughs> is that housing mix. And, and how has that evolved and what, how is that affecting uh, who, is, who is being seen in public spaces and kind of what you're hearing of the demands of public spaces? So I, I said to you sometime in this conversation that when I started, I would have told you that um, 2,000 people, about 2,000 people lived here and 80% of them lived in the missions. Um, our next largest group of housing is workforce housing. Oh, yeah. I realize that. And all of our new housing, so we've had several buildings get built in probably the last four years. Um, the, the developments in the north lot brought 500 units of market rate housing. Um, the apartment building here on Main Street probably has, I don't know, 30 units of market rate housing. We have 107 condos under construction right now. Um, half, more than half of them have sold. So it's, 
I would say now, if you look at who lives in the equivalent of the emission, the emissions were at about 60%, which still makes a neighborhood out of balance, um, but not as out of balance. Our neighborhood plan um, talked about the need, well, every neighborhood plan for Pioneer Square for the last 40 years has talked about the need for more residential in this neighborhood. Um, our neighborhood plan, the 2015 plan that the Alliance was launched from, and then we updated the plan. That We published the first plan in 2010, we updated it in 2015. Um, we actually called out that this neighborhood needed market rate housing. And we aren't bashed, it's not that we're opposed, we think we think all of Seattle needs more density. We think that all of Seattle needs more low-income housing. But we need to figure out integrated, scattered housing where every building has a mix of incomes in it so that no other neighborhood is subjected to what the east side of Pioneer Square looks like where you, when all of a sudden you're housing 2,500 people within a very, very dense, concentrated area. I think it also adds to people's perception. Um, the neighborhoods of Seattle that don't have any low-income housing in them or don't have any permanent supportive housing in them, when they think of low-income housing, they think of Third and Yesler, as opposed to smaller developments that actually are integrated into communities and work well for everybody, where people have a chance to meet their neighbors and actually realize, oh, these are people. You know, these, these aren't the scary other. Right. Um, and so having more people, having more residents in the neighborhood then extends the life of our businesses. Um, we do a robust lunch business in this neighborhood, but the number of restaurants that are open for dinner still is somewhat limited. And it's like if 70, 80% of your neighborhood have absolutely no money, they can't support a local economy. Mm -hmm. And so we have talked about a more balanced neighborhood as a way to sustain Pioneer Square for the long haul. This has always been a neighborhood of boom and bust all the way back to before the fire, um, which for those who don't know Seattle was the late 1800s. But, um, and that's part of it is there's never been a big residential base here to kind of keep the businesses alive. Um, and so we work with the city in support of increasing density in other parts of the city. And we work regionally. We work, the Alliance works with both the city and the county with um, siting treatment facilities, services for people in need regionally, not just in downtown Seattle. Um, we also are really strong partners and advocates with all of the human service organizations in the neighborhood advocating for more services for people in need. Mm. Um, I must have just been in the right place at the right time. I actually um, am perceived now as being this kind of business person, you know, running this business organization in the neighborhood. My background is, of many, many, many years of my background is in human services and in systems change in human services, working with local communities and primarily county governments. And so I have this deep, steeped knowledge and language, and it has allowed me to bridge that divide between the human services side and the business side and help create this space where we can have a conversation that has productive that is productive as opposed to looking at them each other as the other and that we have dissimilar interests because we really have very similar interests well I, getting back to that question of like how you integrate and this may be beyond your uh -huh. your day-to-day -day concerns <laughs> and, and maybe over your skis a little bit here but um obviously i see the the benefit for pioneer square of having a more distributed uh, supportive housing model, a more distributed dependency model, what, what have right. you. What is the benefit to those other neighborhoods of having that? It, it is interesting. If we'd had this conversation five years ago, I would have said absolutely nothing. No, absolutely none. And the other municipalities in King County, it has worked for them really, really well for the last 20 or 30 years. To say no. 
that the majority of services are in downtown Seattle, sure. right? They aren't spending their local tax dollars supporting it. Um, I think that both the homeless epidemic that is that is going on in our region and the opiate epidemic that is going on in our region has raised the volume of this conversation everywhere. And a lot of those other neighborhoods and communities are just further behind in the conversation. They are still in the, do we dare even have a shelter? Aren't we going to attract all these problems? You know, why would we open a methadone clinic in our community? Then those people are gonna come here. And it helps to have people who've lived this and understand this talk to people about those people are already in your communities. <laughs> They're hidden. You know, the majority of people with addiction in America actually are housed. They just haven't become homeless yet because their families haven't kicked them out or their addiction isn't to the point. But it's on the verge everywhere. Um, it's been really interesting to me where regionally people perceive this is the neighborhood of poverty, that the current um, shortage of housing and homeless epidemic in Seattle um, is playing out. We don't have any encampments in Pioneer Square and in every other neighborhood in this city and in region. There are people living in tents and in parks and in green belts and in really unsafe, unproductive situations. And we don't have that here, which now all of a sudden we're invited to conversations because, well, you've been dealing with this really well for years. <laughs> what can we learn from you? Right. And it's like, oh, we have a lot that we can share that helps people right. start tackling it in more productive ways. Because so, um, it's, and we have to find this middle ground where we aren't polarized in this conversation. Um, because I, I sat on, I was on one of the mayoral task forces about homelessness and encampments this last year. And all these incredibly angry neighborhood people from other um, parts of Seattle came in. And they were just talking about how horrible it was in these encampments, illegal encampments. and how awful these people were and breaking these laws and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And um, Daniel Malone, who runs the Downtown Emergency Services Center, which probably provides housing to more than a thousand um, of the most um, psychiatrically disabled people in the region. Um, he, he, and it was like these neighborhood people were trying to pit providers against neighborhoods. And Daniel was like, I thought our starting premise was homelessness and people living in encampments was just awful. He said, I thought that we all kind of agreed for that. It's awful for the people living in them. It's awful for the neighborhoods. Could we just start with a premise that it's awful, that this is happening in our public spaces? How do we help these people? How do we not make it a crime, but we actually make it about getting people into safer, better situations? It was, it was a good place to start the conversation. <laughs> A, well, a little but, reframing always goes but a long it way. Is, but it is because that's that. This people get really hysterical about their parks, and they get hysterical about their green belts, and that all of a sudden my children are going to be exposed to this. And it's like, well, as long as your children are safe and the people who are running in the encampments are safe, maybe it's not a bad thing for your kids to actually see that this is what has this is what's going on in America. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it, it also seems like it's. Um, the other big piece I hear in that conversation is an affront to norms. The, the kids always come up and sort of this issue of community norms and community expectations always comes up. Um, and, and that, that there's uh, people who are experiencing homelessness, people who are dealing with mental health or uh, addiction issues, they are subverting norms and even worse, perhaps, they're doing it in public. Yes. And this is a lifestyle they're choosing. Um, and so for me, it's always about helping people understand the complexity of the issue and to humanize it. Um, and it's one of the things we did this last year. We partnered with Downtown Seattle Association and the Greater Seattle Chamber of Commerce and Visit Seattle. And we hosted a three-part, basically, learning series around 
the issues of homelessness and that were in front of us as a region. And we actually dreamed this up one day, and it was um, the Vice President for Advocacy and Economic Development at the Downtown Seattle Association and I, once again, were going to meet with the Hotel Association, because it was like there were these new GMs for Downtown Seattle Hotels whose heads were exploding about people sleeping on sidewalks and addiction and all of this. What do we do with our public space? And we realized, and why aren't the police doing something about this? And why aren't the police doing, you know, it's not against the law to be mentally ill. It's unfortunate that in America now, most people with mental illness don't have access to treatment, but we can't just throw people in jail because you don't want to look at them. Mm -hmm. um, and if we had taken a more humane position at the beginning, our systems wouldn't have failed all of these people. Um, we don't have a system here. It's, there's, <laughs> um, and so we started that education series just to help people understand the complexity of it. That's what I did with the judge, my meeting with the judge yesterday as I started talking about all of this. For those of us who have been watching, who watch systems and have been aware for the last 25 years of the decrease in funding at the federal and state levels for low-income housing, mental health, and chemical dependency treatment, this wasn't a surprise. What is going on in our public spaces all over? It is not a surprise. This is what happens right. when you take the safety net away. Right. Um, I actually had the pleasure of saying that once at lunch at the downtown chamber. How'd that go? They didn't invite me back. <laughs> but I said, you know, people have been voting for less government. We have it now. It's not working out very well for our urban centers. Because all of our parks and our public spaces is the default for people who have nowhere else to go. So what what more <laughs> needs to be done? I, both, both, and I mean that, um, we were just talking about federal, so you can go federal if you wanted to, but also <laughs> maybe more, more manageable <laughs> is what more needs to be done in this neighborhood? What's your next frontier that you're looking at? Um, we have to figure out how to support the providers on the east side of the neighborhood, at 3rd and Yesler, into um, thinking differently and looking differently at congregating so many people, even in one building. The Morrison, an old hotel at 3rd and Yesler, mm -hmm. um, just through necessity over the last probably 20, 15 to 20 years, has crammed so many different programs into one building that there's like 200 people with chronic and pervasive mental illness who live there. And then there's a different two to 300 people who come there during the day for a day, like there's a hygiene center and a computer lab and things like that. And these are more capable people who actually don't have access to a lot of other things. And then it is also the largest overnight shelter in the region. All in one building. All in one building. So on any given day, you have six to 700 people with under-treated behavioral health disorders on a one city block sidewalk. We have to help them unpack that <laughs> and not concentrate so much stuff into one place. Um, and before we could, and we actually need to go building by building, I think that from a public policy and a public resource standpoint, we actually have to support that organization to change. So that's probably helping them with more resources than we're currently giving them. It is helping them think differently about how they deliver their service model. It may include helping them move some of that out into another physical location just to help that. Um, that part of this neighborhood will not change until then. I consider it part of my moral obligation just as a human being to continue to advocate for people to have access to treatment on demand, um, particularly in the face of this opioid epidemic. What does that mean? Um, currently, if you want to get off of heroin or other opioids and get on methadone or other medication, um, assisted treatment, there is a many hundred person waiting list. 
Um, and part of that has been driven that for decades, the only methadone programs were in, wait for it, downtown Seattle. Um, within the last four years, the county has made huge inroads. There, um, they opened recently, a new methadone program opened in South King County, so down Kent, Auburn. Well, and it was funny because that city pushed back and pushed back. We don't want those people here until it could be demonstrated to them that there were 500 people a day who traveled from South County to downtown Seattle to get their dosing. And in the meantime, there were more than 500 people who lived in downtown Seattle who were on a waiting list and couldn't get treatment. So there's now one in Bellevue. There's one in Canton, Auburn. I mean, there, it is happening. It's just happening really, really slowly. Um, also, in face of the opioid epidemic, many people who are addicted to the heroin and other opiates are also polydrug users, and many of them go on medication-assisted treatment, but then continue to consume alcohol, which is really dangerous. Um, and the residential treatment facilities that people tend to go into for alcohol treatment will not accept you if you're on methadone because you're not really clean and sober. And so it's like these huge systems need to change. They need to learn new ways of doing business. And the only way, I think, from a public policy standpoint, we can get them to change is if we support them to change. We can't just say to them, what you've done for 30 years isn't working anymore. Figure it out on your own. We actually have to help them. Um, and then I think it's incumbent upon everybody to understand the complexity of the challenges and how they vote impacts these things. Because it's if the at the federal level, if the Republicans are successful in appealing the Affordable Care Act, all of the states who went in with Medicaid expansion, it's all going to get exponentially worse because that is what's paying for people's mental health treatment, chemical dependency treatment, and in some cases, their long-term living supports. So there will be more and more and more homeless people as opposed to fewer and fewer and fewer. And it's not just this population, which is easy for many people to villainize. Uh, people with developmental disabilities are supported with Medicaid money. Aging, everybody's aging parents <laughs> are, a lot of them are being supported with Medicaid money and the current plan wipes all of that out. So to me, there's all these things that need to be done that aren't specific public realm things, right. but I think people educating themselves also then makes it easier for us to have these really hard conversations. I think also using respectful language about how, when we talk about people. So this talk, is something. Talk, talk about, yeah, I, so this I is think something, that's really hard. I think that's like because for me, I, I've got taken to task about respectful how you, language. How you how you talk about people. How you show up to that conversation. Yes. So, I, a lot of my human service background is in developmental disabilities, which are people with autism, cerebral palsy, what historically was called mental retardation and now is referred to as intellectual disabilities. And the self-advocates in that arena, many of whom I worked with for many years, taught all the rest of us <laughs> that they are not disabled people. They are people with a disability that you always need to put the person first. This isn't a group of people with a problem. And it's like, now, and now as I'm an aging person, <laughs> and it's like all of us walk around with this um, incredible entitlement from our abilities, and we could lose them at any minute through any kind of an accident or something like this. And none of us want to be thought about as a label. So if you think about people first, which actually is the name of the self-advocacy group for people with intellectual disabilities, put people first. And nothing about me without me has me in the conversation. If you're planning things about me, how about if I'm there? Um, but I think helping people think about these aren't addicts. These aren't 
homeless people. These are people who have behavioral health disorders, or these are people who are experiencing addiction, or are people who have mental illness. Um, they are people. They are our grandfathers and aunts and uncles and sons and daughters. And that's what has helped me. Of course, I got slapped around a lot when I was young by people with disabilities. Sure, sure. <laughs> Call me on my stuff. Sure. <laughs> and it's other language. It's we, our, lang our vernacular is full of ableist language, you know. Um, you know, people talk about, oh, the work was crippling. <laughs> um, or wheelchair-bound, as opposed to, he's somebody who uses a wheelchair. It's a tool for him. It's not, he's not tied to it. We're all iPhone-bound. We are yeah. iPhone-bound. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a Windows phone, but... <laughs> I'm an outlier. Well, you're you're a good <laughs> Seattle person then. <laughs> um, maybe maybe just to close, we we end on a bit of a, a lighter note. Yeah. Greatest success, things that you're most excited about over the seven years of the organization. I think my greatest successes are things that are primarily invisible to most people who have watched what we have accomplished in this neighborhood and the accolades that are put towards us. Um, part of the waterfront redevelopment in the city of Seattle is that we are taking down an elevated highway um, that separates our downtown from uh, Puget Sound. It's kind of like the Embarcadero in um, San Francisco. Um, it is, you know, classic, 1950s, wow, let's build another freeway. <laughs> um, and when they started planning the Deep Board Tunnel and started planning this 26-block-long park, they didn't really do a good job of planning the transit overlay for the 600 buses a day that currently use the viaduct. And probably the two sweetest streets in the entire city of Seattle from a public realm and pedestrian standpoint would be Washington and Maine at Occidental. Um, it, on one part of that, it's now a gorgeous park that is full and welcoming. The other part is um, this lovely European-style plaza where a street was closed and it's just slimed with art galleries and fun restaurants. Um, and early on, I'd probably been here less than six months, and I was in a meeting about the viaduct and the tunnel boring machine where Metro stood up and said that the 600 buses a day were going to go on Washington and Maine. And I said, have you talked to the neighborhood about that? And so we set up a meeting with Metro to talk about it. And this was part of that this neighborhood had never had any advocacy for it. And I, so I talked to the transportation planner. So our Metro in Seattle is our bus and they're buses, believe me. <laughs> um, and he said, it's perfect to put the buses on. There's hardly any traffic on it. <laughs> and I was like, because I, you know, in my quiet, the deep, dark, you know, let's take over the world kind of places, I would like to actually even keep cars off of them. Um, I'll probably never get there during my tenure. But the fact that I stopped that, um, to me, is a huge success. Um, also, the expansion of our bid and the fact that this organization has revenue in perpetuity um, is something that I'm really proud of, that as a, essentially a founder of a new organization, there is always danger when, I, when there is a leadership change and all of that. Um, that, I think, is, um, is something to be really proud of. And I think um, changing the story of this neighborhood, that this was always the neighborhood in Seattle where everyone came, whether you were coming to nightclubs or whether you were coming to a football game. Um, this was where all the bums lived and this was where you came to misbehave. And it is now really this vibrant, cool, hip place that companies are buying to bring their businesses here. And um, the, every neighborhood in the city is trying to replicate what we've done.
Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIG SVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. Thank you.